we're continuing our mini-series. It's kind of only two parts, so this is part two of two entitled Foundations. This is a moment of rebuilding post-pandemic. And the question we're trying to engage with is, what are the foundations we're building on? Obviously, we're building on Christ Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith. But as the church, what are the foundations of the church? So last week we looked at the creed um, and we said together one of the statements from the creed, which is in terms of church, we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. We're going to say it again together. You ready? So just a, a run through it. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. It's a, it's a mouthful. We're going to go for it. Three, two, one. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. We believe in one church united around the person of Jesus. We believe in a holy church set apart for Jesus and for his purposes. That was last week's talk. We believe in one Catholic church, which is small c, by the way, not Catholic, Protestant. That's a completely different conversation. Um, Catholic meaning universal, worldwide church, where there's incredible diversity because we're united around Christ Jesus. And today we're we're going to unpack apostolic, built on the foundation of the teaching of the apostles. And by that, we really mean we submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture. We want to speak with authority. Think of the word authority, root word is author. We want to speak with God's voice, with his heart. That's where authority flows from when we speak with his voice. And we speak with his voice when we're shaped by his word and his will. So listen to these verses. This is Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. Your scriptures, your truth. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word, here it is, is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. It creates a path towards human flourishing. How many of you remember your first day of primary school? Hand in the air if you can remember your first day primary. Not many can remember it right. But I bet you there's photographic evidence somewhere. Maybe at your parents' house there's photographic evidence of your first day of school. I asked the associate team, some of our key leadership team, um, if there was any photographic evidence of their first day of school. There was, by the way. Are you ready for it? This is, this is John Carter. Oh, oh, how beautiful is that? And then look at Anna Mason. Could she be more keen? So excited. That's an extrovert who's heard that there's going to be 30 or so kids in the class with her. And, and, and look at that fringe. My, my. Perfection. Perfection. Um, Rich Spence didn't have a photo of, of primary school, which is a shame. But he did have secondary school. And there we go. <laughs> this is before Harry Potter was written, but he was already a fan. He was already a fan. Um, Incredible. What's that got to do with scripture? Well, I want to tell you about the education system of first century Judaism. So primary school was called Bet Sefer, meaning house of the book. Now, around the age of four or five, you would go to Bet Sefer, um, and day one, you'd be given a slate tablet. Now, on that tablet, you were going to learn the Hebrew alphabet. You were going to learn to read and write. And eventually, you were going to learn over the course of a number of years to memorize the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. 
Think about that. That's pretty incredible that over a few years you'd memorize the whole of the Torah. Remarkable. Now, day one, as I said, you'd be given this slate. And the first task, the teacher would come around and pour honey all over the slate. And your first job was to lick the slate clean. It's a great first task, isn't it? Just this slate loaded with honey. And then you were ready to learn the alphabet, to learn to read and write, and to learn the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah. Now imagine what that would do to your imagination over the coming years as you engage with scripture. That these words are life-giving. They taste like honey to me. Listen to these texts. Ezekiel, and he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat the scroll, in other words, the scriptures. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth. He gave me the scroll to eat. And then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey. Good reading. Honey in my mouth. This is the the understanding of the Jewish community when it came to the scriptures. It wasn't dry. It wasn't a duty. It's like, I'm going to devour these scriptures. They taste like honey in my mouth. And they create a lamp, a pathway towards human flourishing. Listen to these words, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Keep this book of the law, the Torah, always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. This is the pathway to abundant living, meditating on Scripture. Now, a key part of meditation, by the way, is is repetition. You read something and then you chew on it. You read it again. You speak it out. You speak it out. The capacity of the human mind to memorize text is quite incredible. Like kids memorizing the whole of the Torah. You and I can do that if we put our minds to it. I'll give you an illustration of this. About 10 years ago, my eldest son, who's now a teenager, but when he was like three or four, maybe even younger, a toddler, his favorite book was The Gruffalo's Child. And for a six-month window, we read it like three or four times a week. I, I, I began to hate The Gruffalo's Child. Every night, should we read? Yeah. What about the Gruffalo's child? He had a really high voice back then. What about the Gruffalo's child? What about another book? No, 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 the Gruffalo's child. So we read it again and again and again. That was 10 years ago. So for six months, I was reading most nights the Gruffalo's child. It just went in. Sometimes when I can't sleep, I just read it to myself right now. I don't need the, I don't need the book. It's just in my mind. The Gruffalo said that no Gruffalo should ever step foot in the deep, dark wood. Why not? Why not? Because if you do, the big bad mouse will be after you. I might met him once, the Gruffalo said. Then he thought for a minute and he scratched his head. The big bad mouse is terribly strong and his scaly tail is terribly long and his eyes are like pools of terrible fire and his terrible whiskers are tougher than wire. Ah! I'll stop there. It's just all, it's all there. It's all there. Now, I did that for six months, right? What, what if you were in the scriptures for years and maybe decades? Do you think that would be formative? 
it would be deeply, deeply formative. Listen to this, Psalm 1, Anna read it earlier. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Can you see what this was doing in the imagination of the Jewish people? It's like honey on my lips and it's like a lamp to my feet and it enables me to put down roots and in every season, hard times, good times, I can thrive because God's word guides me. Final text, Jeremiah. When your words came, what did Jeremiah do? He didn't just read them. He didn't just intellectually ponder them. He took a bite from them. Like he ate it. In other words, he devoured the words of the Lord. And he says, they were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. I don't know what your relationship is like with scripture. Let's be honest. I know some of us, it feels like duty opening up the scriptures each day. Right? But these words have the power to bring incredible life and incredible light. If you go back to the creation story, Genesis 1 and 2, you get a picture of this. You have the spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters, hovering over the chaos. And then God speaks, another the word of the Lord. He says, let there be light and there is light. So you have the word of God and you have the spirit of God. And there's an explosion of light and an explosion of life. Like we've been stumbling around in darkness for many of us, trying to figure out how do we thrive in a season like this? Have we been opening up our scriptures? Have we been devouring the word of God? It's a guarantee from scripture, whether you feel anything or not, when you open up the scriptures, whether that's your daily routine, morning, evening, whenever it is, when you open up the scriptures, there will be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. Can you see why the enemy would work so hard to distract you from the one thing that would bring you kingdom life and kingdom light? Like Netflix, social media, whatever it is, the enemy doesn't want you to open this book because when you open up this book and welcome the spirit of God, there will be outbreaks of kingdom life and light. So the word is a lamp, but more than that, the word is a lens. It provides a lens through which we can see and make sense of our surroundings. Um, four years ago, B's dad tragically passed away. He was on holiday with his wife. Um, he went for a walk to have a quiet time. He found a little spot. He opened up the scriptures. He was reading Psalm 63, beautiful, beautiful psalm. And heart failure meant that his life came to a very, very abrupt end. He was found dead by a farmer. And we eventually found out as a, as a wider family, we all rushed down to, to Wales to be together for the next few days as we came to terms with this incredible shock. And we all responded in very different ways, you know, to the, the beginning of this grieving journey. And I noticed that my brother-in-law, he'd taken his dad's glasses and was wearing his dad's glasses around the house. Now, if, you, if you've 
worn somebody else's glasses. I know some of you are just wearing these as a fashion accessory. They're not prescription glasses. This is a safe place. I know you do it. Um, these are fashion and their prescription glasses. It's a slightly different. But when you put on someone's prescription glasses, it's like, whoa, what's wrong with you? Like, whoa, I, I can't see anything, right? But he was wanting to wear his dad's glasses. So I, I said to him, I was like, Paddy, I've noticed you're wearing Nick's glasses. Like, I'm just wondering why. And he said this, he said, Pete, I just want to see the world as my dad saw the world. I just want to see the world as my dad saw the world. You know, that, that's the gift of scripture. That when you open up the scriptures, it's like a lens through which you can see the world as God intended you to see the world. So let's do a, a quick gear change from theology to neuro-linguistic programming. Stick with me, you're going to love this. Do not dial out, you're going to love this. I want to talk about the gap between reality and perception. Now reality, this is according to neuro-linguistic programming, all around us, there's three billion bits of data which is too much for your brain to process. So there's a kind of an elimination of data that, that goes on. So what happens is this data goes through your senses. You're being bombarded with data, sights and sounds of the kids downstairs and, and maybe a police car going across the Pentonville Road and you're aware of someone behind you and the person in front of you and the lights and you're aware of me. Some of you thinking, I really do love those glasses. They're great. And has Pete lost a little bit of weight or is it just a stripy jumper? It's, I've lost a lot of weight, thanks so much. So you're, you're processing all of this. It goes through the senses, taste, touch, feel, smell and hear. And then it goes through some filters in the brain. We generalize, we delete, we distort. This is happening in nanoseconds, by the way. We generalize, we delete, we distort. So you make generalizations. I'll give you an example. If you as a child were bitten by a dog, you've probably made a generalization that dogs are not safe. So when you walk to work, I'm putting my money on the fact, I don't bet by the way, but I'm putting my money on the fact that you're going to notice every dog on the journey. You're just like hyper aware of all the different dogs right the rest of us if you've not been bitten by a dog as you walk to work you're going to notice the big and aggressive dogs and the really cute ones and all the other dogs you're just going to delete it you won't even notice there's so much happening around us we don't even we're not even aware of it we just delete the data and then we distort bits of data to to create an outcome that we want and eventually you land with a hundred bits of data right that's three billion bits of data sort of like narrowed down to 100 bits of useful data. That's why at a crime scene, by the way, the police are looking for multiple eyewitnesses. You only caught a tiny fraction of what actually happened at the scene. But as they hear multiple stories, they get a clearer picture of what took place. Now, we do the same with scripture. We come to the text, you have biblical reality, and then you have perceived biblical reality. And there's a massive gap often between the two. It goes through our senses and these filters, generalize, delete, distort. So we bring to the text a pre-existing worldview of maybe Western individualism um, and consumerism and materialism and secular humanism, all these different worldviews. We bring it to the text, we impose it on the text, and then what do we see staring back at ourselves in the text yeah open up the scriptures we bring the pre-existing worldview hello there you are great to see you this morning oh you're looking good right the word becomes a mirror and and we do this all the time 
we basically take these scriptures and we find ourselves staring back at us and we find a Jesus who shares our political preferences and basically whose ethics are basically ours but a little bit more polished. Um, this is how we end up with a white European Jesus that's depicted in art throughout the ages and for many of us seared into our imagination. We don't have a first century Middle Eastern Jesus because we basically had a pre-existing worldview and we started reading the text and it just started reflecting back at us what we really wanted to see in the text. There was a lot of generalized delete, distort going on. Don't like that in scripture, generalized, delete, distort until we found what we really wanted which was our own worldview reflected back at us. This is why Voltaire once said, in the beginning God created man in his own image and man has been trying to repay the favour ever since. We just create a Jesus who looks and sounds and lives a lot like us or at least how we'd want to live. Is there a better way to read the text? Tough crowd. There is a better way to read the text, just to let you know. You don't have to read the text like that. There is a better way to read the text. And that's to come to Scripture not just with a worldview. In other words, a pre-existing worldview. You can come to the text for a worldview. To be given a set of glasses that help you make sense of your surroundings according to the kingdom of God. So I want to talk about the worldview of Eden. The story of Genesis 1 and 2 is a worldview-creating text. It's not a scientific text of how the world began. began. It's not a historical account of the first few days of creation. It's a worldview-creating text to enable you to see things through the lens of our Father in heaven. And what is the story about? It's about abundance. It's about freedom. It's about living life fully in the presence of God. Now, I want to talk about what that freedom looks like because there's a significant difference between the freedom that we read of in Scripture in this worldview-creating text and the freedom that's celebrated in, in the secular context of our day. So when we talk about freedom through our modern lenses of expressive individualism and, and secularism, what we really mean is autonomy. Autonomy being a compound word. Auto meaning self. Nomos meaning law. A law unto yourself. That's what freedom in our context really means in society. You're your own king. Everything should revolve around you. You create the rules. You get rid of all boundaries. You do whatever it takes for you to thrive in life. Is that a biblical understanding of freedom? And the answer is no. What is a biblical understanding of freedom? Well, here's a tool that was used in the early centuries by the rabbis of the day. They used this tool to understand biblical language. If you want to understand what a word means, you go back to the first time that word is ever used in Scripture. You find its first mention, and the first mention dictates the meaning. So what is the first mention of this term freedom? And it comes in Genesis 2, verse 15 to 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, here it is, you are free. You've got this image of Adam and Eve naked and unashamed and living the dream. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Can I just highlight two things there? Number one, this is going to offend you. Just get ready. Brace yourself. Autonomy leads to death. 
That's what this worldview creating text is trying to highlight. You defining good and evil for yourself, which is what this eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil was about. In other words, ignoring God's definition of good and evil and defining it for yourself. This is this worldview creating text. Autonomy being a law unto yourself is going to lead to death. That's the first thing, offensive I told you. Um, Secondly, that life is going to be found, freedom is going to be found, not through the absence of boundaries, but the presence of the right ones. Biblical freedom isn't the absence of any parameters. It's the presence of the right parameters, the God-given parameters for human flourishing. In other words, the word of God, the law of God. Summary would be freedom comes through submission to God. Now, our modern ears hear that, and it's like, that can't be right. Freedom coming through submission to God, that that just can't be right. Freedom is about overcoming any form of submission, right? But in the kingdom of God, freedom comes through submission. Let me try and illustrate some of this for you. So Paul, in his letter to the church in Philippi, he says, Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. He starts this letter, and if you know this letter, this letter is about freedom. This letter is about joy. Through church history, it's been known as the epistle of joy, because Paul is constantly talking about joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice. It's in this letter, he says, I found the key to contentment. The Greek word is autarkis. In Greek philosophy, it was one of the highest pursuit to understand contentment. How can you live life with contentment? And Paul says, I found the key. So this this letter is about joy, freedom, contentment. Notice the context. He's writing it from prison. So in prison, not when life's great, but in prison, he says, I found joy, freedom and contentment. Key word here is servants. Greek word doulos could be translated slave. Paul and Timothy, servants, submitted to Christ Jesus. This letter is is Paul saying, I found the key to contentment. I found joy, I found freedom, and I found it through submission. Another passage, Ephesians 5 and 6. Here's the principle at the start of the passage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word submit, Greek word hupotasso. Should we say it together? Hupotasso sounds great, doesn't it? Hupo meaning under or underneath. Tasso meaning to rank or to order. To order yourself beneath. In other words, to put others first. So that's the principle. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on, controversial, wives submit to your own husbands. Now this is a moment in the church where we generalize, delete, distort, generalize, delete, distort. It can't possibly mean that, generalize, delete, distort. It, It does mean that. It does mean that. It means exactly what it says, right? Wives submit to your own husbands. But listen to this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that sound like? It's hupotasso. It's mutual submission. For Paul, in the first century, to say, wives, submit to your husbands, standard. But for him to say, husbands, submit to your wives, that's a revolution beginning right there called the kingdom of God. This isn't sort of celebrating, endorsing patriarchy. This is the kind of the beginnings of the end of it. As the kingdom of God, the new creation breaks in upon them. It's mutual submission. 
Children, essentially, hooper tasso to mum and dad. Regularly say that to my kids. Listen, it's, it's from scripture. Just do it. Tidy your room. Just do it. I don't read in this bit. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. In other words, fathers, we might add mothers, like hooper tasso to your kids. In the first century, telling parents to submit to their children, that's the beginning of a revolution. You need to know that. It's called the kingdom of God. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity, just as you would obey Christ in the first century context. That would have been standard, right? Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Oh my goodness. This is mind-blowing in its context. This is the beginning of a revolution. It's called the kingdom of God. And what is the principle it's hupotasso. Put others first. Freedom found through submission. Think about Jesus. What was a motto for the life and ministry of Jesus? Let's try this one on for size. He says, I only do what I see my father doing. Yeah, that, that isn't autonomy. I'm a law unto myself. He says, no, no, no. I only do what I see my father doing. I only speak the words he gives me to speak, right? And, and he lives out that motto. And you see it, it builds to a climactic moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane. He's, he's journeying towards the cross. Um, and out of his mouth in that garden comes seven words that are like a hinge point in the whole narrative. Without these seven words, there is no cross. Without these seven words, there is no resurrection. Without these seven words, there is no outpouring of the Spirit. Without these seven words, there is no breaking in of the new creation. Without these seven words, there is no church. Anyone interested in the seven words? Try to build that up to a climactic moment, trying to create a lean-in moment, like, what are the seven words? What are the seven words? Online, what are the seven words? Um, you weren't leaning in, I know. Here's, here's the seven words. Not my will be done, but yours. He says them three times. Like, God, is there another way? It says in the, in the Gospels that he's sweating blood. Physiologically, that's as anxious as you can get. He is so stressed. It's like, is there another way? And then he says the seven words, not my will be done, but yours. Again, as he contemplates what's to come, God, can you take this cup of suffering from me? There must, there must be another way. Not my will be done, but yours. God, there must be. There, there must be. Not my will be done, but yours. Seven words that change the course of human history. And through those seven words, we have the cross, resurrection, outpouring of the Spirit, new creation, church. We're alive in Christ today because of Hupatasso. He said, not my will be done, but yours. This is how you smash the window, by the way. This is the better way of reading the text. Not to come with your own worldview and say, like, I, I want to find in the text what I already believe. And that will justify how I live. The better way is, is to essentially say the seven same words that Jesus said in Gethsemane. And that's a means by which we enter into his story. The abundance, abundant life that flows from Calvary is we say, I'm going to read this God. And I'm going to come with humility. Not my will be done, but yours. So whatever you reveal to me in this, your word, I, I want to submit to it. 
I want to order myself beneath it, believing that your vision for human flourishing trumps any vision I might have or society around us might have. I submit to your will and your ways. And when you do that, you notice the word becomes a window. Rather than the word being a mirror, it becomes a window. And through the window, you can see the life of the age to come. You can see this new creation, no death, no grief, no crying, no pain. God making all things new. And here's the beautiful thing, by the Spirit of God, you can begin to taste it in part. Not in completeness, but in part. You can taste the life of the age to come. You can actually step through this window and begin to experience, just in the early stages, begin to experience life as it was created to be lived. But here's the deal. Have you ever tried... Breaking through a window, either if you've got locked out of your own house or just broken to somebody else's house. Right, it, it, when you break through a window, n- normally you're like, I've locked myself out, how do I get back in? It's the bathroom window, it's the one that's always left open, right? Um, and, and, and you have to really bend down low. And, and, and to get through the window, you really need to bend down, which is a posture of submission, right? Like kneeling throughout church history. Is, is, is the posture of submission. When you bow down low, that, that's humility. To get through this window, you have to bow. You basically have to say, not my will be done, but yours. You can't get through the window if you think you're the king. Jesus called it a narrow gate, a narrow door. That To get through this narrow gate, death to self. You need to pick up your cross daily and follow. But when you bow down, you you can begin to get through the window. And what you realise is on the other side of the window is something more beautiful than you could possibly ever have imagined. A life so much greater. You've left something behind. You've you've died to self, but you've embraced like newness of life. And you realise on the other side of the window, there's only one king. Let me break it to you. It's not you. It's not me. And on the other side of the window, there's, there's only one one's will who really matters. And it's not your will. It's not my will. It's the will of God. There is abundance when with humility we say, not my will be done, but yours. Let me close with the story of Hein Pham. Hein Pham was a guy based in Vietnam during the 70s. There was a well-known American evangelist touring around the States and Hein Pham was his interpreter. Um, and they traveled around for months, and eventually the American evangelist went home. Hein Pham stayed in, in Vietnam, and the communist regime kicked in, and they captured Hein Pham, and they imprisoned him. They believed that his work with this American evangelist, they believed he was working for the Americans trying to undermine the communist regime. So they took him into prison, and over months and years, they tortured him, brutally tortured him. They went through a process of brainwashing him, trying to crush his faith and brainwash him with Marxist ideology. This went on for years and years and years in prison. It gets to the point in prison where he's like, I I can't actually fight back anymore. I can't do this anymore. It's just, it's too brutal. God, where are you in the midst of my agony? Like, how have you allowed this? God, where, where are you? You can imagine you'd ask similar questions and he decides he's going to give up on his faith. The next morning he wakes up and for the first time, you know, in years and years and decades and decades, he doesn't have a quiet time. He doesn't pray. He doesn't sort of ponder scripture. He's given up on that. So he goes about his chores and his task was to clean the latrines, to, to wash out the toilets. So he goes to the toilets and he's, he's cleaning the toilets and he notices in the toilets a piece of paper. And he leans down, it's got some English text on it, and he, he picks it up 
And he subtly puts it in his pocket because he doesn't want the guards to see what he's doing. Anyway, he takes it back to his cell and he opens it up. He brushes off the excrement, the urine, and he reads these words from Romans 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, height, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Incredible. The day he gave up on God, he realized God hadn't given up on him that his love was still available. Next day, goes to the toilets, finds some more text, puts it in his pocket. Next day, does the same thing. Next day, the same thing. He basically discovered that the prisoners were using the scriptures to wipe their backsides. Part of the the brainwashing and, and humiliating the Christians. But every day, he'd wipe off these pieces of paper and he'd begin to encounter God in his word. Every day, scripture is a lifeline. Anyway, after 17 years in prison, he was released and he decided he wanted to phone his friend, this American evangelist. So he picked up the phone. The American evangelist hadn't heard from him in 17 years and always wondered what, what happened to Hein Pham. He totally dropped off the radar. And Hein Pham tells his friend, look, I got imprisoned. But, you know, they thought I was undermining the communist regime. I went through brutal torture, constant brainwashing. And his friend said, look, I don't know how you made it with that kind of brutal torture. Like, how, how did you survive 17 years in prison? And this was his answer. God's word was a lamp to my feet. There was a moment I gave up on God and I realized he never gave up on me. He revealed himself to me in, in the scriptures. The scriptures were a lifeline and a lamp unto my feet. Like, I don't know what your relationship with scripture looks like. Whether you have a rhythm of like just reading a bit every day, five minutes every day. Maybe there's a, like a few times a week you do it. But here's my encouragement. Whenever you read scriptures, there's an invitation towards an explosion of light an explosion of life. Like there's an invitation to to take a pair of glasses and see the world as God sees the world. But here's the thing, there are seven words that are key. Not my will be done, but yours. Like all the big questions of our day around human flourishing, whether it be expressive individualism, identity, what does it really mean to be human, sexuality, materialism, these massive questions, there's a vision of human flourishing found in scripture. But the way through the window is supertasso. Seven words. God, I'm gonna wrestle with the text because I wanna understand it. But when you speak, here's my posture, I'm gonna bend down. Not my will be done, but yours. And on the other side of the window, there is abundance. Do you believe it? On the other side of the window, there is abundance. It's called the kingdom of God.